Nothing like a little gospel text to bring us together here on a Sunday morning, huh? I want to talk to you this morning about covenant. What a covenant is. A covenant is a promise. We don't function often with language of covenant, but it is the language of our faith. God is a God of covenant. He makes a promise to his people, and in that promise invites them to live into the promise themselves of a relationship between a living God and a saved humanity. We know this from the First Testament, Moses, the story that we are at the end of here this morning. You remember that he brought God's people out of bondage in Egypt so that they might live in a promised land. God called this people to himself. He made a people for himself. He claimed the Hebrew people as his very own by a promise. He took them out of bondage and into a land to prepare to enter into a land promised for them. And it took a while for them to get the hang of what it means to live in relationship with a living God, how it is that one lives into the promise of God. It took at least one whole generation. Because as you remember, when they ended up in the desert, with the promised land ahead of them, yet not realized, they were a little freaked out about the whole experience. And they wondered if God would really deliver on God's promise. And they gripe and moan, and you can read about this in Exodus. They say, what did God do? Just bring us out here to die? But God says, no, I'm a living God, and I provide for you. And so God sent manna from heaven, enough that they could claim every day. And on the sixth day, he sent enough that they could claim for two days, the day they were living and the Sabbath day. And they were well fed. But they were frustrated and annoyed by the manna that they were given, and they griped again. And they said, you know what? Back when we were in Egypt, although we were slaves, we at least had cucumbers and melons. If you read about it in Exodus, it goes on to list all these really tasty pieces of produce. So God hears their cry, and he sends them quail. And so they have quail and manna, and they are provided for. Yet they still gripe and moan, and they say, we don't even have water out here. And so God enlists Moses, and Moses taps on a rock, and from the rock gushes water. God, through each of these activities, is saying to them, I promise to provide for you. Yes, you are in the desert, but you are not forgotten. You are my people, and I have a promised land for you. And I need you to grow in an understanding of what it means to live as people of the promise. To live in relationship with a living God who remembers you. So at one point, while they're in the desert, Moses goes up to the mountain to talk with God about what this might look like to live as a promised people. This is where he receives the Ten Commandments. And you might remember that while he's gone, they freak out again. And they say, gosh, he's been gone for a really long time. This is it. This really is it. We're going to die out here. And so they put together their gold jewelry, and they melt it and smelt it all down, and they configure it in the shape of a calf. Aaron, Moses' younger brother, was the one in charge at the moment, and they became unruly, he says later. So they created a golden calf, and they march around it because surely God has forgotten them. And what were they even thinking that God is a living God? Well, when Moses comes down off the mountain... He is furious, to put it mildly. And he knows that God is furious too. 
And as we read in the book of Moses, God says, you know what, never mind. I'm done. I have tried to show these people that they are my people and that I provide for them. And I, never mind, I don't want to try any longer. And Moses pleads with God and says, I can understand how you're angry. Let me try to work on this. And he lets forth his wrath on these promised people and says, why don't you remember that God is your God, a living God who's called you unto himself? You need to live like that. And he takes the golden calf and he grinds it all down to dust and he puts it in water and makes them drink it. And they most certainly cannot build anything from what comes from drunk gold. It takes a whole generation, at least, for people to get the hang of what it means to live in relationship with a living God, one that has called them to himself, God of the covenant. And as we read in Deuteronomy, they're on the cusp now of entering into the promised land. They've gotten the hang of it, at least pretty much most of the time. And Moses is on his deathbed, and he says to them, keep trying. Choose life. Choose the living God. You've done a pretty good job. You're getting the hang of it. Keep it up. And the Hebrew people enter into the promised land on the other side of the Jordan without Moses. This is hard for us to fathom that God is a living God in relationship with God's people, especially when things don't go as we expected. But that's what it means to live in covenant. And we do have some ways in our life that we understand what it means to live in covenant. It's hard to hold on to that and not turn it into some legalistic system, which is what we saw from the Hebrew people. They take the Ten Commandments, and as you read in Leviticus, they break them down to the minutiae who you can eat with, how you can eat with them, whether you wash your hands, what kind of vessels you use, what day of the week it is, what hour of the day it is, it turns into a law. And we are inclined to do that very thing. One of the covenant relationships that we know about is marriage. As Christian people, marriage is a covenant. It's a promise. This person says, I promise. This person says, I promise. God says, me too. And it's done. That person, that couple is now joined together in a lifelong relationship of promises. We know, though, that when that wants to be dissolved, it ends up needing legal help. Indeed, we turn ourselves into legalistic beings. We can keep score and have sheets of merit and lack of merit in our relationships with one another. I have the privilege of walking with people in preparing for marriage and even in their married life. And I remember on one occasion sitting with a couple who were preparing for their second marriage, both of them. And I was asking them about their first marriage, things that they had learned from that experience, because just because we've had a hard go at it doesn't mean we're cursed for life. So I was wanting to hear from each of them about that experience. And the woman said to me, well, he was unfaithful. She referenced even the piece of scripture that we read today in some kind of, kind of way. And I thought, that's a completely misread of what Jesus is saying here. Infidelity is not a get-out-of-marriage-free card. What Jesus is saying here is you can't make an adulterer out of an adulterer. It's already done. But Jesus is not condoning 
divorce. Marriages go through hard times. And we find ourselves trying to figure out what does it mean to live in the promise. And sometimes we really mess up. And yes, sometimes divorce is the outcome. And our church, I'm glad to be the minister of the gospel in a church that recognizes that things go wrong sometimes. And that people make mistakes. And people aren't and shouldn't be burdened with that mistake all the days of their lives. But the church doesn't condone divorce. I remember talking with another person once. I got a phone call near the end of the day from a man who said, Whitney, I need help. My wife found out this morning that I'm having an affair. I effed up. I said, yeah, you did eff up. So we started to think about what to do. And he said, I don't think I can go home. And I said, I think you should not go home right now. But where can you go? Do you have a friend's house maybe that you can go to? No, he said, not a friend. I said, well, do not go to the bar. The bottle is not your friend. We started to think about maybe some public places, a park or a library, some place that he wouldn't be consumed by his realization of his idiocy, of his error, of the wrongdoing that he had done. Because we needed to lay a foundation for something good to come from this. I'm happy to say that that couple has learned how to live into their covenant with truthfulness and honesty and is married still to this day. A covenantal life is about a promise. It's about keeping a promise. And we don't really know how to do that in our lives. It's easy to fall down into just listing in bullet point form what the laws are we should follow. And whether we did it or didn't do it, and then making decisions about who's in and who's out. And Jesus, in our gospel lesson today, says, no, 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 you're people of the promise. I didn't come to abolish the law, but I want to pull you beyond the law, living into what it means to be a people of a covenant, living into the promised kingdom, the kingdom of God, and I need you to look beyond the law. What does it mean to live beyond the law? One other thing that we know, another covenant example that we have, is our baptismal covenant. And I want to ask you actually to pull out your book of common prayer. I think it's page 305. Page 304 and 305 has our baptismal covenant. Now in our baptism, a promise is made. God says, you are my child. You can call me father, mother. You are my direct creation from my very self. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, you are made one with me. That's my promise, God says to us in our baptism. And so then we are challenged to say, well, what does it mean to live as people of the promise, of the covenant that God has made with us? And we as Episcopalians have outlined five things that we believe help us live into being covenant people, people of the promise. The first is, will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers? Well, what does this look like? Going to church? Gathering with other people for worship? On a weekly basis? Even on a snow day? Praying? regularly during the week, studying scripture. Now, we could get legalistic about this and say, you must do this, you must do that, and you must do this, but we don't. 
We say we have to live in to this promise. And so what do we answer to this promise? We say what? Exactly. We can't do it by ourselves. The second covenant part of the covenant is, will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? Well, what does that look like? There is no pure evil out there. There are no witches to be burned. There is no gang or religious organization that is pure evil. There's no ruler of a country. There's no president that is pure evil. There is no pure evil on the other side of the political aisle. It's not true. But in our desire to pursue and persevere in resisting evil, sometimes we actually mess up. We overstep the boundary. We actually gouge out the good with the evil. Or maybe we mess up because we didn't do all the work that we needed to do. We don't get it right. And that's what this part says to us. Will you persevere in resisting evil and when you sin, repent and return to the Lord? Why? Because we're going to. And what do we say? Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? What does that look like? Do we say, thank you, Jesus, after anything good happens, or maybe even everything bad? Do we have a homily or a sermon prepared to give to anyone? Do we try to recruit people into the Christian faith and get them to say particular words so that they can know the risen Lord in their life? Maybe. We don't know exactly how to do this, but what do we say? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? What does that look like, though? How do we begin to see Christ in one another? It requires a lot of mindfulness and attention, and usually we've got some hurried times in our day, and maybe we've missed some people. And loving our neighbor as ourself, well, that's all fine as long as you love yourself, but if you're not very good at loving yourself, well, I feel sorry for your neighbor. But what do we say? We strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. What does this look like? This does usually involve the political realm. But justice and peace, those two things together, probably not going to get it exactly right. Probably going to be a little too hard on the justice or a little too much on the peace. It's hard to get this combination. We strive, but it's not always attainable. Respecting the dignity of every human being, at least once a day, we mess up on that one. But what do we say? We are people of the covenant. God invites us to live into the promise the promise that God has made to us that we are God's children and that God invites us to bring about the kingdom that he promises. We are invited to live into that covenant, to try again, because God promises to help. Amen.